Welcome to the Flick Club, the one and only film podcast in the world that you should be listening to, period. Not egomaniacal at all. I'm Kari, a Finnish digital nomad, currently in Spain, but it would not do to sit here all alone in the bar because my home internet is so bad. Hence, we also have my stupendous uh, co-host, Inspector Henrik here. How are you, Henrik? Oh, yeah, can't do fucking Palamu laugh at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that uh, we have to try to master that one. I yep. tried to master it throughout this week, preparing for, the, for, for this episode, and it has seriously done a number on my throat. <laughs> yeah, there's different kind of laughs, I think he does. I was trying to kind of get the other one, this... <clears throat> yeah, that's that's really. I, I I would say that's the Palmu laugh right there. Yeah, almost, but no Palmu cigar. Henrik lives in Finland. We are both Finnish, not Iranian, not Americanized Indian, as some people have thought. Yes, this is true. Some listeners determined our origin a few thousand kilometers off, but it happens to the best of us. And for. All who celebrate Happy Independence Day or Hyvää Itsenäisyyspäivää. How do you celebrate independence, Henrik? My celebration is the typical Finnish one, where I sit alone in dark, watching the unknown soldier for the umpteenth time, and then go visit the graves in total silence. You're such a good Finn. Maybe those are made only in the northern parts, outside of Kehäkolme. I'm starting to get the feeling that we Finns are losing kind of the, that the sense of what really makes or what being a Finn is all about. And I'm still trying to keep up the old traditions and old values. But you're not religious, right? Well, I have to confess, no, unfortunately not. That, that is one of the areas where as a Finn I'm still lacking. <laughs> okay, but this is kind of... Okay, that is out of the equation, but you are still rooting for Finland, of course, in different ways. Well, naturally, basically in everything I do, starting from the ice hockey matches and ending with the Finnish-Russian border, a sentiment that will get us in trouble in no way. (laughs) Well, we sure like to push our borders in this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, we have had a lot of, <clears throat> I would say, a little close calls in this podcast. I mean, I have had to be really careful what I put out here as soon as we got these international cinema episodes out. Because, well, everybody has their own opinions and everybody has some facts. But some facts, if you say them aloud, you just might be ending into trouble. And that's just the kind of the world we live in. Uh, when it comes to my Independence Day celebrations, I usually watch the Itsenäisyyspäivän vastaanotto, the presidential gathering where they shake, well, the presidential couple shakes hands with everybody famous and 
sometimes not so famous, and then they dine with taxpayers' money. I occasionally watch also the unknown soldier, Tuntematon Sotilas. I must confess that I'm actually both in shock and awe that you chose this film over The Unknown Soldier for the Independence Day episode. Like, what the fuck, Kari? Seriously. <laughs> you, 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 had, you had one job, one fucking job, and that was to pick and watch The Unknown Soldier. For the umpteenth time. For the umpteenth time. You are the guy who refused to do Die Hard for Christmas. So this is where I'm pulling the curry and... It's... it's f- fucking Die Hard as a Christmas episode is is completely different question than watching The Unknown Soldier on the Independence Day. Yeah, but uh, as you know, we watch it every Independence Day. So how about a movie that has gathered the critics under the same roof in the sense that this has been voted in 2012 as the best Finnish movie of all time? And that's only because the poll was actually... Performed with critics who have not seen the Unknown Soldier. <laughs> like this, this already smells like that. There were some critics from I don't know Albania or Norway or Canada that were flown into Finland to watch bunch of Finnish movies, and because they were not ethnically Finnish to begin with, they have yet to see the Unknown Soldier. So they voted for Palamu. Well, I doubt that many foreigners have seen this tonight's movie, not least because in the DVD, as well as in the Blu-ray, you do not have English subtitles. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is the best movie, voted the best movie of all time in Finland, and you cannot watch it with English subtitles. (laughs) Or you can't even find it anywhere, because the distribution of this film is extremely limited. Even inside Finland, it's kind of a bastard to find copies from these old Palamu films. Hendrik and kind of I found our copy in the library. <laughs> With great effort we have now got this movie to the podcast, and I'm, I bet that nobody who listens to this has even seen it. But if you're finished, then there's uh, the tiniest chance that maybe you have. Welcome to the Flick Lab, the Unknown Movies podcast. I must confess that I'm surprised that you were able to find tonight's film from a Spanish library. (laughs) Well, so, Inspector Palmo, it is really sad that it hasn't gotten more exposure because it it is a really good film, especially this first film. This is the first film of a total of four, all done in the 60s. And uh, the character is based on novels by Mika Valtari, Arguably the most famous Finnish writer out there who is responsible for the huge ass book called The Egyptian or Sinuhe Egyptilainen for us Finns, which has also been made into American film adaptation. And I can't blame you if you do not know this book because I would still argue that it's not that famous. Not outside Finland, of course. In Finland, it's kind of a mandatory reading to everyone at some stage of their life. But once again, you know, once you leave the borders of Finland, I I would say it's a pain in the ass to get your hands into a copy of the book. It always kind of struck me as sort of a contradictory that perhaps our most famous book from Finland is called The Egyptian, but that's how it is. That's how we Finns do it. (laughs) Yeah, because you see... Mika Valtari was uh, 
big time traveler and he did a lot of his research on his trips and finally he wrote this the Egyptian and many others that take influence from his trips and considering that this is the guy who wrote the Egyptian I'm a little bit shocked that the world doesn't know probably almost anything about Inspector Palm but that's what we are about to correct here and believe me our dear listeners if any one of you wants to see this with English subtitles I will actually go through the slavery and do the freaking Finnish sub, uh, English subtitles for you if you cannot find them anywhere else in case you of course legally buy this as DVD or Blu-ray from some shanty ass town in Finland and then just manage to put the English subtitles on it so. that, that, that's no trick today anymore with the VLC and other other modern players I guess not I haven't tried that yet, you know. But all right, Inspector Palmus series consists of Inspector Palmus error or Commissario Palmun Erehdus from 1960. The second part is Gas Inspector Palmu, so Gas or Commissario Palmu. Which, despite the name, in actually surprisingly, in no way deals with the issue of Holocaust. Yes, and also does not involve. Flatulence of any kind. So this was in 1961, and the third part it is the stars will tell Inspector Palmu from 1962, or the Commissario Palmu. The fourth part is the least preferred by almost anyone, made many years apart from the original so-called trilogy. Vodka Commissario Palmu, Vodka Inspector Palmu 1969. In this one, the Writer Valtari, or Valtari, was not involved in the script. Valtari actually walked out without talking to any of the filmmakers after the movie finished in the theater. It just went off. <laughs> I'm sure it's it was his favorite movie. Well, yeah, the- Vodka is understandably the least liked film in the Palmu series. Mika Valtari's attitude towards the film is quite understandable. But I still, myself, of course, quite like even Vodka Commissario Palmu. It's not as bad film as basically everybody is saying. Yeah, it's been so many years since I've seen any of the sequels or any of these films. So it was great to see the Inspector Palmu's error. This first film is actually based on the second Inspector Palmu book by Mika Valtari and... There's also been a stage theater version of this uh, same book. But what is my background with Inspector Palmu? I was in Herrala, Hollola, a small town, and family member had a VHS, which had, or many VHSs that had many absolutely fantastic movies, like the Indiana Jones movies. That's how I got in touch with Indiana Jones, watching these old VHS tapes in a little cabin in the middle of nowhere. And then there was Commissario Palmu and something else. I was around maybe 10 or 12. And at the time, of course, you can imagine, <laughs> this made quite an impression on me. And it has some horror elements to it. And it was forever engraved in my memory as one of the great ones. And surprisingly, it holds up today when I see it now. It was actually a good movie. What's your background with Commissario Palamo? I too was somewhere around, would I have been 
seven or eight when my parents just you know dis- decided with to drag my ass in front of TV and watch this film. <laughs> I myself hadn't even heard of Commissario Palmu at that point, but it was once again one of those times when they deemed knowing Commissario Palmu as a common knowledge, which you kind of should have, and a character you should know. So, well, in Finland, the Finnish broadcasting station Yle likes to rerun the movies every now and then, and it was just, you know, one of those times in their broadcasting schedule when they went on and showed all the Palmo movies within a month, like one movie each week, kind of a deal, but yeah, I got into Commissario Palmo through my parents. Once again, so was your father kind of a forcing you to watch all the great classics, like he forced you to watch Rear Window because it's an eternal classic, Henrik, and now you have to watch it, and same thing here. Exactly the same thing. Uh, just like, you know, how, how it's with me and even with horror genre, which also completely started with my parents. Coming to me as a kid and being like, get your ass into the living room and watch this film, they are playing the creature from the Black Lagoon on TV. You should definitely watch this one. <laughs> and that was my first entry into the creature features. Also, with my parents, I have to say that Yle is also something that's to which I owe a huge debt for for my interest in film and basically the basic the common knowledge I have with different types of cinema. Because when it comes to the old horror movies, which is how I got into the genre, when it comes to Palamu, when it comes to the unknown soldier, when it comes to most of these classics that have some way defined my entry point into movies, it's most often been that Ule has had a rerun of some film and then my parents have picked that up and made the case that this is such of an important film that you should most definitely see this one. Would you say that your parents are film buffs? I would not say that they are film buffs Okay. in any way, but in their youth they actually watched a lot of movies, they happened to watch a lot of classics, and they did watch films from quite a lot of different genres. But when they got older, they kind of uh, formed their interest around one genre. For example, my father is a huge fan of old westerns and prefers to watch those and occasionally watch James Bond movies or spy thrillers or something like that. But I would say that today he's foremost a Western film buff. And my mother, on the other hand, today mostly prefers dramas. But, you know, back in their youth, they did go and watch The Exorcist. And they did know all these old creature features. They did know all the old sci-fi classics. So I don't know what happened. During the years, why they, for example, walked away from the horror genre? Horror is an interesting genre. Even I did take a few years break after I finished the Kauhenyö events for a while. Because I came into this kind of a place in my life where I thought that there's something wrong here. Why am I watching people being butchered? And somehow I 
lost his connection with this. Like, I felt a little bit sick to my stomach with that. And, well, I've never been, like, a much of a splatter type of guy, but I love the psychological horror more than any horror subgenre. That's just a side tangent. But, yeah, I really already like your parents. <laughs> and Creature from the Black Lagoon is a great freaking movie. I wish we can talk about that at some point. We should definitely cover it in some of the future episodes. Excellent. So th- this is a very well acted movie for such an old movie, should I say. I mean, during those times, it, it was not so obvious that you would get this type of performances from your actors. There's a lot of this like theatrical overperformance, but it never actually is as distracting as it sometimes is in these old films. That's what I felt. I'm kind of on the other side of the argument here, because in my opinion, in many cases, back on these days, when, for example, these palmus were made, the Finnish acting was, and Finnish filmmaking in general, it stood on a certain type of ground. Like there was this kind of a, this seal of a quality in the way how we made films. And that's something that I feel we have kind of lost as the time has progressed. In good or bad? I would say in bad. Uh-huh. I'm not saying I hate modern Finnish cinema, and I'm not saying that our history, all these old Finnish movies are all timeless classics. In fact, I would make the case that the history of Finnish cinema on its entirety is actually quite it's extremely complicated and there's a lot a lot of mistakes and missteps that we have taken in our film production and how we approach film and what type of films we make we have a lot of turkeys yeah yeah in the past we have a lot of franchises long running franchises that Never should have made it past the first film. I'm looking at you, Pekka and Pätkä. Oh. Yeah, it's fucking abysmal films, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> uh, the only shining light being, and this is only on basis on how absurd it is today, but Pekka and Pätkä's Negroes. Yeah. Yep, that did happen. That is something that exists, even though we try to deny it. Can we think of it as a racist or something that they did at their time, which is not really racist, or do you see it as racist? Um, I'm two-folded okay. on the question. It, it's kind of, kind of how you approach the issue of racism. The film itself, obviously, is racist. Uh-huh. Like, you can't escape that. It's It has the blackface, it has basically all the racist stereotypes that you could have spun on that time. So as a film, as a thing that exists, you you know, you can't deny it and you can't deny the fact that through that way it is racist. At the same time, there is also the question, do you count in the factor that for in order something to be really, really be racist, you would have the maleficent intent behind your actions, that you made something knowingly hurtful way in order to hurt someone emotionally because you really wanted to to do that and 
if we take that approach, I would say that Pekan Patka as Negroes does not have that malicious intent behind it. Yeah, just to get us blacklisted from all the major distributors of podcasts, I would say that if you paint somebody white as black, I do not see the racism in that in itself. But if the intention is malevolent in any way, then of course. But if not, if you are trying to masquerade, then that's a different kind of purpose. Of course, that doesn't really work. But if you're kind of a making a comedy, yeah, there, there is that fine line kind of. If you think that the character is, let's say, a little stupid and thinks that he can get past some kind of, let's say, security by painting himself black to impersonate somebody black. Well, I don't find that funny, but it's understandable why a stupid character would do that. So, wow, there, there's a lot of layers to that. Anyway, <clears throat> Inspector Palmu. Matti Kassila is the director. He is known for many Finnish movies that are well-respected. Some that we could raise up in this podcast. Uh, it's uh, There's, of course, the entire Inspector Palm series. And then the Radio Burglary, or Radio Tekee from 1951. There's a Scarlet Week, Sininen Viikko from 1954. There is Harvest Month, Elokuu, 1956. And perhaps the one that uh, jumped as the most interesting of the bunch to me, outside of Palmu, is the Scarlet Dove. Tulipunainen Kyyhkynen, 1961. It's a film noir-influenced film. It was entered in the 11th Berlin Film Festival and modeled perhaps after Fritz Lang's The Woman in the Window. I've yet to see this film, but I will definitely try to collect it from my Spanish library at some point. Then there is uh, Goodbye, Mr. President, 1987, crime thriller, kind of self-explanatory. Guy tries to kill the president. Jäähyväiset presidentille. <laughs> Then there is Natalia from 1979. I don't know if I should laugh or not, and I don't know if this is racist or not. I haven't seen it, but the synopsis kind of catched my interest. It's a movie about a Russian cow. Yes, a cow. That crosses to the Finnish side, and it's attempted return to the USSR. Matti Kassila's last movie was Played All, or Kaikki Pelissä from 1994. Dude is born in 1924 in Keuru, Finland. He's still alive and he's one of only two people who look to be still alive from the original Inspector Palmus Error movie. And Inspector Palmus Error is respected by critics and the public alike. Matti Kassila has been giving many Jussi prizes over the years, mainly in the 50s and the 60s. And you see, it's kind of the price that is the equivalent of a Finnish Oscar. Anything to add here, or should we start going through the movie? I can see that you are trying to change the subject from the issue of racism here. <laughs> You're doing it as smooth as fuck here, correctly. Like this is how you change the subject when doing podcasts. Do you want to bring us even more trouble <laughs> in this podcast? Well, I. Uh, You know, to give you some leeway on the issue, I can promise that I won't be denying Holocaust here in this episode. I will... <laughs> episode. 
And so Kari will be a complete question mark again in the editing booth. Un- unable to make decisions and where to draw the line. Yeah, you either we're constantly on the line. Yeah. You either cut that or you know we will be cut off from the podosphere forever. <laughs> you know at the moment that we are recording this the in the name of the Emio episode is our most successful episode by far right now uh, the post itself has been seen by over 35000 people and it has been listened to about 520 times at this point maybe not to the end but it has been listened or downloaded that many times according to the statistics so definitely being current and being slightly on the controversial edge kind of dancing on the line certainly has an effect on the download numbers i would say that something that might count a lot in those download numbers is the fact that we chose a film that is like you said which is kind of a political and which is topical on these yeah. socially aware times we are now living i think we have really struck the gold here if you're up to it we can do even more of these international episodes but to be perfectly honest this require a lot of work so we have to be careful not to drive ourselves crazy in this podcast well henrik <laughs> this is one of those episodes once again no th- this was not an easy movie to analyze honestly the plot is i think so integrally so closely tied to the book version that it really is as deep as the book and there's uh, honestly shit tons of layers in this plot and shockingly even though i went through every tiny bit i could go through in this whole you know detective story i was shocked to find that i did not find any you know errors it all all matches up when you put it in a timeline I am utterly shocked. This is very, very, very well thought out through. Yeah, that's Mika Valtari for you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The dude really could plot his timelines. When it comes to the crime itself, I would say not so much. <laughs> like, one of the key elements which leads Palamu on the chase and highlights to him that what has happened is in fact murder... I think really does not hold water, so to speak. I'm having a deja vu to some episode here. Yes, rear window. You were having kind of similar attitude towards those. The idea is that the neighbors were having and they were calling murder from the day one. Yeah, and in here it, my attitude ties completely around the question of the light switch, which is a huge plot point in this film. I think it's more of a humoristic plot point. It's brought out throughout the movie, just to get some laughs. It still is a major plot point. Like, that is the moment. The light switch is something that makes it obvious to Palamu that murder has happened, despite the fact that everyone else tells him that it was an accident. Yeah, but what a dumb decision. Like, why would you switch off the lights if you're trying to make it look like an accident? That I don't understand. Precisely, and also the whole lies which question ties around those formed habits that in this case 
the character Butler has. And I would make the argument that that's not how it should go. We can get into this matter more tightly on the scene by scene. I have two propositions for you. We could go through the movie first, like, as is, or we can go through the movie in like a timeline fashion, in the way that the all the events occur in the actual timeline. What do you reckon? Interesting proposition, I must admit. And I guess something that would not harm us too much, seeing how most likely none of our listeners will ever get a chance to see this film. So why not? Let's try the timeline one. Okay. The people in the house, for the most of the movie, and the characters that we are concerned with here, are the old lady Amalia Ryksek, this is the aunt of Bruno Ryksek, and the sister of CEO Ryksek. Following still? Bruno being the actual murder victim here on this film. The yes. one who whose death kicks off the entire investigation. Mrs. Ali or Ali Ryksek is the spouse of Bruno Ryksek. Then there is the clerk, Mrs. Airi Rykämö, which is the cousin of Bruno Ryksek. Yeah, don't forget that Ali and Bruno are in middle of a divorce. But they mm-hmm. have practically they have already divorced, but it has not been legally confirmed yet at the time of this movie. Because that's also one of the big plot points later on in this film. The divorce and the stage at which the divorce is currently going on. And really from the beginning it is clear that Mrs. Ryksek is not wholly concerned about this drowning incident. Then there is university student Mr. Aimo Rykema, cousin of Bruno Ryksek as well. So Mr. and Mrs. And then there is engineer Erik Vara, representative of CEO Ryksek. CEO himself just stays on his CEO seat in his office elsewhere. He is disabled. Then there is Butler, or Mr. Veijonen, who serves Mr. Bruno Ryksek. And then there is K.V. Laihonen, the book writer. And then there is his romantic interest, Miss Irma Vanne, the daughter of President and CEO Mr. Vanne, if I get that correct. But I have no clue who is CEO Mr. Vanne, or have I lost my brain cells at this moment in this podcast. That's all, but you can of course count the detectives or the inspectors, or how should we call them, as well. There is Franz J. Palmu, there's Toivo Virta, and there is Väinö Kokki. And that should complete our people in the house. Well, I believe almost the first thing that happens is when Mrs. Vanne goes to steal the script of... K.V. Laihonen, after they have earlier in, supposedly in the same day, decided with Mr. Ryksek that they will play this treasure hunt where somebody needs to steal something and the one that does that the most, or at least whose crime is the most terrifying in this crime treasure hunt will win the game. And that supposedly happens on Friday. So, in my understanding, then there is Saturday. On Saturday, Airi Rykem, again, the cousin of Bruno Ryksek, dines with Bruno Ryksek, where 
Airi Rykämä realizes that Bruno Ryksek has signed the bills of Aimo Rykämä only for the purpose, at least at this point, to control Airi Rykämä. And Bruno Ryksek says that Aimo Rykämä has signed with the name of Bruno Ryksek some 10 bills, having the combined tune of 120,000 Finnish marks. I have no idea how much that is in current value, but let's continue. Aimo Rykämä confirms he signed the bills himself since he was unable to get in touch with Bruno Ryksek. Bruno Ryksek uses this to lure Airi Rykämä to spend time with him to create a faked naked picture of her. How scandalous. Indeed. A lewd photograph. This is still one of those times when simply having a naked picture or even possessing a nude picture would be really big news. Yes. Now we have genitalia pictures of half the celebrities out there, so no biggie. Yep. Then we change the day to Sunday. As far as my understanding goes in this podcast. Bruno Ryksek is waiting for his friends to arrive on Sunday at 21 o'clock or 9 p.m. to his house to discuss their successes or lack of success in the game. Bruno Ryksek has painted his face to play Mr. Death, apparently. And now we can count the crimes of this treasure hunt game. Aimo Rykämö has stolen the cat of Amalia Ryksek. Airi Rykämö has stolen bills of exchange that Bruno Ryksek has approved. And to get to these, Bruno Ryksek claims that Airi Rykämö played a promiscuous game. The bills of exchange involve Aimo Rykämö's game debts. Bruno Ryksek's crime was to fake the face of Airi Rykämö on the fake picture of her naked in the bathtub room, and poisoning the cat owned by Amalia Ryksek. Your listeners are still following this shit. And then, somewhere down the line during this evening, Bruno takes away the script from Mrs. Vanne, the script of K.V. Laihonen. Amalia Ryksek, the owner of the cat, then arrives in the middle of this meeting and informs Bruno Ryksek that Tomorrow he will pay for this cat killing and everything else. Mrs. Van claims that she leaves as the last person from the house, but apparently she never leaves. Around 11, Airi Rykämö arrives through the back door with the key provided by Bruno in the earlier day. When she leaves in the morning, she has a document from Bruno Ryksek which will free Aimo Rykämö from any debt claims. And Airi Rykämö stays the whole night in the guest room. She lies that she left the same night to not give the wrong impression to writer Laihonen about herself. She stayed there whole night because she could not get to the script that Bruno Ryksek had taken away from her, which she tried to return to KV Laihonen. And that kind of completes Sunday evening. And in fact, in this movie, I found that it's really hard to follow you know, exactly what day they are sometimes talking about. And there is so much information in this movie that on the first watching of this film, I couldn't exactly put it together. But then I rewatched it, paused like 520 times, and now I'm on the map what is happening in this film. What about you? Do you have bigger brain power than me? I couldn't say 
bigger brain power since I have seen this movie quite some times. Okay. Already before, you know, doing this episode. Granted, they were years ago, the last time I saw this film. Not now counting in this latest time, couple of days ago for this episode. But yeah, I'm familiar with the story. And in that sense, it could be that even though it has been years, I still can follow the plotline more clearly because of these repeated exposures to the film. <laughs> and everybody is a suspect at some point uh, in a classic detective way story, of course. But there's a lot of subplots going around and suggestions to lead you the wrong way. Are these type of stories called a closed room mystery? Is this a term that is widely used? I would say this one is a closed room mystery, even though the element of the closed room is never really played that much here in this film. Yeah. Yeah, the first murder does happen in a closed room. That is one of the key elements why everybody is so quick to point it out as an accident instead of murder. But then again, it's like 20 minutes into the case when Palmu already has confirmed it to himself that it was in fact a murder and not an accident and has already figured out how the closed room element has been actually done. So when it comes to the mystery of the closed room as a space, Palmu solves it right away, like in minutes. Palmu sees the lock and almost immediately knows how the room has been closed after exiting the room. Do you find it silly? Uh, no, I... I mean, it is something that is extremely easy to do. There is nothing fantastical on the solution how the room was closed. In fact, it's so logical and so simple that I would already count it in as a cliche. Yeah, at this point, like 70 years later. Yep, of course, yeah, we have an advantage here because times yeah. have passed and there has been a shit ton more murder mysteries to which we have had the opportunity to sink our teeth into. And this way, yeah, we are more familiar with all the methods you can fake a murder as an accident. Yeah, I guess the more the accident is based on real events, the more possibility there is for you to engage the crowd, because it might actually be something fresh, something that you can actually buy, because it actually happened. We completed Friday, Saturday, and the Sunday evening, and this should be, in my understanding, the Monday morning now, the following morning, and the death. So here we go. Mrs. Vanne slips a letter under K.V. Laihanen's door with instructions on how to arrive to the Rüksek property so he can get his script back. <laughs> what a horrible woman, this Miss Vanne. I wonder how they are even spending time together after this debacle. How come? Well, Mrs. Vanne steals the script of K.V. Laihonen and then he's supposed to be romantically interested in this little thief. Yeah, well, you know, that's how it went down back in those sovinistic old days. <laughs> the, the exact same way, you know, th this was also something that I noticed now watching this film 2018 is the 
Weihau Miss Vanne gets inside Laihonnen's study, or his apartment, is that she faints. She fakes fainting, and Laihonen carries her inside his apartment. This KV Laihonen, this character is very. I get this very feminine vibe from him. I I didn't get a feminine vibe. I did get a vibe of him basically trying to live up as an intellectual and upholding these old chivalric values, which really play to his downfall when it comes to the whole stealing his script. Mm. Like today, if you would come around a fainting woman, you sure as fuck wouldn't actually make the so-so suicide of carrying her inside your apartment. Like, no way in hell. I would quickly enter my apartment, close the door, and just, you know, <laughs> leave the woman right there. <laughs> and count my blessings that no one actually managed to see the situation. Because, oh my fucking god, if, I, if there would not be some explaining to do immediately after that. Maybe after after the fact that I've already safely inside closed doors, I might call an ambulance. <laughs> e- even though that could also lead, you know, more questions from the officials. And once again, the situation would look extremely bad for me. I see where you are coming from. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it, it's, a... it's self-preservation. It's the theme of 2018. It happens to people who have grown up in around Helsinki, right? <clears throat> not caring about your neighbor is the theme. Well, <laughs> sure as fuck not carrying your neighbor inside your apartment. <laughs> like, can you just imagine the police investigations going on right after that one? I can see Mrs. Funnek claiming in 2018 that she has been horribly raped by this person. So early in the morning, when Bruno Ryugzek is sleeping. There's Engineer Vara, who sneaks into Bruno Ryukseks room and steals a key from his pocket. Supposedly, when he is sleeping, he opens his table drawer, rips off the page with the naked faked image of Airi Rykemö that he was shown by Bruno Ryukseks the previous night, and at some point accidentally breaks Bruno Ryukseks camera. But the breaking of camera had to happen when Bruno Ryukseg had already gone to the bathtub because I do not buy that he would return the key, break the camera, Bruno Ryukseg would not wake up. So this should have been a second visit to his office slash bedroom. Wasn't breaking the camera intentional? Like it was revenge from Eric Vara okay. for the picture. That is possible, but even then, you know... Bruno would wake up to that cling, for sure. So I'm taking that he pays another visit to the room when he is taking his bathtub moment. But who knows at the end. Anyway, at 9.35, Amalia Ryukseg and Mrs. Ryukseg arrive together to the property. Amalia Ryukseg requests Butler right away to wake up Bruno Ryukseg. And normally Bruno Ryukseg apparently would get up every day... 10 minutes later at 9.45. Butler argues against this decision to wake his master 10 minutes earlier, but then he anyway proceeds to wake him up. 
Butler says that Bruno Rüksek called from his room 20 minutes after getting up. That would then set that event at around 9.55. Butler then proceeded to go deliver him the breakfast tray. And Amalia Rüksek and Mrs. Rüksek then proceed to the parlor or the hall. Mrs. Rüksek approves this information, but it is only partially true as we find out later on in the film. Because Mrs. Rüksek knew that Amalia Rüksek had been away for some time from the parlor. And then she, Mrs. Rüksek, realized that she, Amalia Rüksek, had killed Bruno Rüksek. And to knock Bruno Rüksek unconscious, she uses a wooden head of her umbrella. Bruno Rüksek either falls into his bathtub or is already in the bathtub when he's knocked out. That is left unclear in my opinion. Yeah, knocking off Bruno is kind of an interesting moment. If you look at the scene more closely, because Bruno himself is still in his pyjamas when he's lying at the bottom of the pool, which kind of makes it clear that Bruno has been outside of the pool during the time of his murder or when he was beaten to death. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Unless he's very lazy and just puts on his pajamas when he goes to bathtub. Which we actually do see him do. Oh, yeah. In that one scene where Butler is recapping some of the previous parties that Bruno used to have. But seriously, who the fuck goes into a swimming pool in his pajamas? Like, I mean, knowing what kind of a pain in the ass and how costly it is, three disinfect a goddamn swimming pool. That's something you most definitely do not do. You do not go into a swimming pool in your pajamas. Anyway, he's knocked out. So before 10 o'clock, Bruno Rüksek has been murdered. And 9.45, Engineer Vara arrives, I guess again, to the property to kind of fake that he wasn't there already before. I'm not exactly sure, but he does arrive at 9.45 as well. At least, and Butler informs Engineer Vara that Bruno Rüksek has gone to take a bath and then went to the parlor as well. But this contradicts, however, when he later says that he went directly upstairs immediately to check on Bruno Rüksek. He noticed Bruno Rüksek was no longer in his room. Then he came downstairs, waited in the parlor for 10 minutes for God knows what, but he says that he waited 10 minutes. I suppose that 10 minutes is the moment he arrived to the parlor, and then at the end of 10 minutes, it's announced that Bruno Rüksek has died. Well, anyway, him arriving there at that particular time, that would then mean that if after those 10 minutes, Engineer Vara was invited by Butler to help him with the door, to get through the door, that would then place his arrival to the parlor to around, let's say, 10.05 or 10.10, around that ballpark. Because... Between 10.15 and 10.20, Butler asks for help to kick the door down. Yeah, there's a shitload of things happening here. Then writer Laihonen arrives to the house sometime before 10. And around 10, Mr. Aimo Rykamo, the Hunsvotti, arrives. 10.15, Butler goes upstairs to look for his master, Bruno Rüksek, since his master had still not returned from the bath. Butler then goes to the door of the bath, but noticed it was locked. And he then calls for 
Bruno Rüksek, but no response. Miss Fanna tries to take the script from Bruno Rüksek's office while he's in the bathtub in the morning, but Butler and engineer Vara are walking around so she can't get to the script. However, when passing the door of Mr. Rüksek, Mrs. Vanna can hear the breaking of the camera when she passes by the door of Bruno Rüksek's room. Mrs. Vanna passes by the bathtub room and hears a noise in the hallway as well. And this is the first indication of any kind for anyone in the house that something weird is going on. Butler gets nervous and asks engineer Vara to join him and also Ima Rukamo joins in breaking the door. Engineer Vara kicks the door open, Butler switches the lights on or doesn't because he explains later that he doesn't switch the light on, but let's suppose he does switch the light on. And they find Bruno in the pool. Engineer Vara goes to call the ambulance right away. Butler and Ima Rukamo try to revive Bruno Rüksek. The lights were shut and the door was locked from the outside. Ari Rukama arrives to the scene and panics and screams. And therefore, of course, in a very nice fashion, Engineer Vara slaps her. Amalia Rüksek arrives to the scene and tells her to clean up the place. Of course, this should be the first indication that Amalia Rüksek is the murderer. But no, the movie carries on. And there's so many plot points really going on that you cannot really follow. But yeah, Butler does the cleaning, according to Amalia Rüksek's asking, and Butler does the cleaning after ambulance has gone and taken Bruno Rüksek away. 10.20, Ire Rükema indeed arrives, she rings the doorbell several times, everybody's busy with the murder case. Engineer Vara then most likely opened the door to Ire Rükema and informed her of the incident. Sometime after 10.20, the cookmen visit the boiler room downstairs and then they leave. Writer Laihonen and Aire Rukema go to the boiler room because, well, it was a convenient place to discuss. And shortly after the detectives have arrived, Engineer Vara picks up the phone and is informed that Bruno Rüksek has died. Palamo informs everyone that they can't leave the house. In the bathtub room, Butler informs that everyone has visited the room and Butler himself has cleaned the whole room, wiping off most or all of the evidence. Great job. And he has even squeezed the soap back into form. And Butler says he did all of it out of pure instinct. Around 12 in boiler room, Palmus Group and Butler find the writer Laihonen and Mrs. Fun chatting away about some crime, of course. <laughs> Completely unaware of the murder, though. Mrs. Fun says he does not want to be any more friends with Bruno Rüksek. Hmm, is she the murderer? Laihonen says a person was murdered... But Palmo did not say anyone was murdered. Ah, is the writer the murderer? Who knows? And Miss Wanne also, on her part, raises suspicion by admitting she knows where the door she uses, that the door will lead to the bathtub room. Oh my god. Among other places, though. Mrs. Rüksek informs Palmo that he will not inherit Bruno Rüksek, at least not alone. Butler proceeds to dig the grave for Princess Adeline von Katzendorf Kopberry, or the cat. <coughs> Butler informs that Amalia Rüksek was probably expecting to start living in the house after the master of the house would have been institutionalized. Butler also tells that when somebody makes moves in the dining room, it can be felt in the pantry as the glasses are clinging. Butler has worked previously in a hotel and was fired due to a 
cash deficit incident, so now he's also the suspect. Butler has set up a clock to accidentally go off when Palmo inspects Bruno Ruxek's room. So someone has now crashed the camera on the floor as they notice the camera. And there is a threat around the writer's script. Inspector Palmo finds the red book of Bruno Ruxek full of naked pictures of young women. Mrs. Vanna explains that she tied the thread around the script with a candy package thread. I think it's kind of up in the air if this... Was this candy package threat used to lock the door downstairs by Lady Ruxek? It is kind of implied that that could be the string that was used to close the door. Since Palmu goes all around looking for the piece of string used for that purpose. And that is the only string they actually find. But it's uh, never confirmed. Yeah. Like a small piece of <clears throat> string is something that is extremely easy to dispose of. Exactly. Palmo is super obsessed about a piece of string or thread and the light switch. Both of which are kind of left up to your imagination what happened there. Well, Palmo then gets a phone call. I believe it's Aake from the office that informs Palmo that the hearings have to be ended in the house since nothing has come to light, in Aake's opinion anyway who was never in the house. He thinks that there's nothing that would suggest that there would be anything else than an accident going on. And this is because the CEO of the Ruxek company has asked to shut down the investigation. And hilariously, Palmo gives a <laughs> tough time for his colleagues as well. So that all the bad talk goes in the right order. Writer Mrs. Vanne and Team Palmo go to camp before lunch, <laughs> which is kind of random. Mrs. Vanne explains the script incident, which mostly is just a nice side story. No, it, it definitely contributes to the overall story, maybe in key parts as well, but most of all it's... I'm not sure if it was so integral. Anyway, Amalia Ruksek, Engineer Vara, Mr. and Aire Rukama and Mrs. Ruksek then gather to the parlor to discuss the proceedings following Bruno Ruksek's death. Amalia Ruxek has already been agreed to the control or ownership of the house. Mrs. Ruxek demanded that she should take ownership of the house, but that was not legally possible. But she can ask that simply for the reason that she is there now out to extort Amalia Ruxek to do it, because she, Mrs. Ruxek, knows that Amalia Ruxek did kill Bruno Ruxek. So Mrs. Ruxek had for now only inherited big cash and retirement payments until her death, but had the divorce already legally happened, Mrs. Ruxek would only receive retirement money, and had she then remarried, she would have lost that too. Not sure how legal that is, but I guess if that is laid out in the agreement, then I guess what can you do? But in any instance, she wouldn't have had any rights to the house, unless Amalia Ruxek voluntarily would have given them away. Well, the heirs will now be the CEO Ruxek and the kins or the kinsfolk present at the house. Palmus posse arrived to the office only to be informed that Mrs. Ruxek has now died from poison. No surprise. And then Team Palmo returns to the house. Now, Butler said Amalia Ruxek wanted Mrs. Ruxek to take the first drink when they were having their time in the house. Amalia Ruxek says she didn't ask to offer her poison. And this is one of the, maybe the kind of weakest links in Amalia Ruxek's alibi. 
because she asks indeed Mrs. Ruxex to take the first sip, and yeah, th- this is where the suspicion is going to the Amalia Ruxex side. Then again, for this one to kind of work, Amalia would have had to know, or Amalia would have had to have a precognition on what booze Mrs. Ruxek is going to drink, since yeah. alcohol consumption is something that is all over the board in this film. It is. If you look at what Mr. Rukema is having on the tray, there's at least five different drinks. How the hell did it go so that Amalia Ruxek managed to poison her with the correct drink? Yeah, she would have had needed to know that Mrs. Ruxek would prefer the absin, which is her choice for poison from all the booze that's been offered. And yeah, Amalia could have gone with the pre-knowledge that Mrs. Ruxek likes absinthe, but then again Mrs. Ruxek herself makes a point that she has not had absinthe for quite some time, so... Yeah, there is the kind of the problem, if there has been a long time that Mrs. Ruxek has not used absinthe, even if that would be kind of a, her preferred alcohol, how the hell could Amalia Ruxek really count on her choosing absinthe on this situation now that absinthe is present? Indeed, and as long as we're talking about the drinks, I am reminded that in this podcast we try to look for the drinks that are being drunk in the movie that we are going through and in this case well ladies and gentlemen i'm recording this in a bar because my wi-fi is so shit that i came here and my wine is i cannot really tell you what it is but it's red wine that's that much i can tell you i was not able to find madeira wine which i was looking for because amalia ryuksek prefers that but what about you henrik well as a I guess, complete surprise to everyone here in a film that's full of booze and alcohol. I, on the other hand, am not consuming alcohol here on my end. Oh. Yeah. In a name of loving memory of the cat in this film, which gets poisoned through a plate of cream, I'm actually drinking cream here myself. (laughs) Really? Yep. I was not able... Despite my tries, I was not able to get my hands in any cyanide. But I am compensating that by using everyday household chemicals in my reach. So, currently, what I have on my plate, I have... I have formal sensitive white care, which is concentrated liquid detergent, and some... Green fiery, which is a washing up liquid. (laughs) And why fiery? Well, because it comes with a fresh minty flavor. (laughs) Hope you won't be ingesting those in this episode. I sure as fuck am doing my best to actually put this one through. (laughs) So, uh, Engineer Vara then believes that the poison was meant for Bruno Ruxek, which is kind of hilarious. Amalia Ruxek says that Bruno Ruxek's mother will inherit what Mrs. Ruxek already had inherited whilst she was alive. And Amalia Ruxek 
then gives even more clues that she is the criminal because she gives a false lead very strongly to keep an eye on Butler. But Palmo doesn't give a shit, he's a rebel, he goes to sauna. And then Butler disappears, for whatever reason. Actually, that's not even explained ever. He just disappears, because he thinks that evidence is pointing too much on him, and he decides to be the good citizen and run the hell out of town, or wherever he went. Well, Detective Toiva is sent by Palmo to the house again to return the backdoor key to Amalia, and also the red book to Amalia. Then I am not sure where the day even changes. I think this movie is pretty unclear about its timeline. But I believe after this, returning the key, returning the red book, giving the fucking gun to Amalia Ruksek, this is probably where the day changes, because the next shot is from Palmu's office where Palmu takes a phone call. But we will get to that. In my opinion, Tuesday begins with Amalia Ruksek being paranoid and thinking that she is followed around the city by the police, but she is in fact followed by the police because Palmo has decided to put some ice on Amalia Ruksek that nobody else will be killed in the following days to avoid more casualties. But the first scene of the day as far as I can see it is when indeed Palmo is called by CEO Ruksek and he invites Palmo to visit his office and he suggests that Bruno Ruksek could have had suicidal tendencies, especially here because according to CEO Ruksek, Bruno Ruksek believed that Amalia Ruksek could be very able to arrange him into an institution, therefore he, Bruno Ruksek, killed himself. But the poison absent according to CEO's theory was meant also for Bruno Ruksek himself, but he was a coward and didn't drink it. This is fucking ridiculous. But this theory then is revealed to be only made up as a suggestion for Palmu to approve it to save face in the family. Nice guy. I'm I'm surprised that he the Palmu is not locking this guy up straight away because the next thing the CEO does is he offers Palmu a position in his company if he takes this suggestion of the CEO. Well he does not directly offer him a position. In the security, he merely makes the notion that they are planning on upgrading their security systems and getting some new heads or new managers or su- new supervisors in the security sector of the company and that Palmu could be taken into notice as a possible candidate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of obvious though that he is trying to bribe Franz Palmu right there. It is, it is. It's extremely obvious, but he does not say it out loud. Like, you drop this investigation and I will make sure that you are hired as our new head of security. Pa- Palmu does not directly state that he's gonna be a dig around the office and steal all the cigars. He merely just goes in and grabs the box <laughs> and leaves the offices. <laughs> yeah, he's never disturbed by big characters. Like, he never feels like he should be run over by big CEOs or anyone higher in the hierarchy. Except that he completely is being run over by his uppers. By the way, how his investigation kind of gets shut down in the middle. Yeah, honestly, when I first watched this movie, like now recently, 
I thought that when Palmu was calling off the investigation the first time around in the house, I thought he was doing that and indeed shouting that so that he would inform everyone that the investigation is off so that he could be able to do some undercover investigation after that and kind of watch all the players of the house after. But that was not the case because I was not following the movie well enough. It was indeed about his superior and the CEO of Ryksek company to pull off the investigation. Yeah, that's anyway. the, yeah, that's the kind of a problem when you are taking part in the officer sector. In this case, the police work instead of being a private eye or some other type of freelancer. Your mm-hmm. uppers can shut down your investigations whenever seemed fit and you just have to go with it. Absolutely, and then it is revealed that CEO's father was mentally ill, and then Palmo makes the suggestion that these genes could have carried over in the family, and the CEO is not very fond of this accusation. Amalia Ryksek owns one-fourth of the company shares, CEO around half, Bruno Ryksek had like one-fourth as well, Mr. and Ida Rykemo had some. And after the death of Bruno Ryksek, the CEO owns now more than half. In fact, then Palmu suggests to engineer Vara that Ayamu Rykemo is the killer because Bruno Ryksek had disgraced his sister. But that is just Palmu pulling a prank. And Palmu is also somehow sure that Airi Rykemo did not do promiscuous acts. I don't know how the hell he can pull that one, but he just does. And then Palmo, of course, discovers that he is indeed right, and the naked picture is a fake picture. <coughs> Engineer realized that he killed Bruno Ryksek to protect Aire Rykema, because he dearly loves Aire Rykema. And Engineer doesn't believe either Mr. or Aire Rykema killed anyone, or would know anything about the murder. But yeah, Butler has disappeared, but Butler is soon recollected from somewhere by Palmu. Palmu, writer and Mrs. Vanne meet and discuss. Uh, Detective Toivo is sent to meet people, all of the people of the house, to explain the latest developments. He does so. He doesn't get to Mrs. Vanne, as she happens to be sleeping in her apartment. Detective gives Amalia Ryksek the red book and a gun, as noted earlier. Amalia Ryksek calls Mrs. Vanne and calls Mrs. Vanne over to the house to discuss the events and do some research. Then Mrs. Vanne hears the clanging of the glasses when she is in the house, indicating that Amalia Ryksek must be upstairs in the dining room. Well, Mrs. Vanna goes to the dining room, and it's super dark. Horror movie time. Amalia Ryksek tries to shoot Mrs. Vanne after they have noticed each other. But Team Palmo arrives just in time, and Toivo, one of the detectives, gets a shot to the shoulder while he's trying to protect Palmo, and does so. Team Palmo arrests Amalia Ryksek, and Palmu explains at dinner with Ryder and Mrs. Vanne that Bruno Ryksek was the only one who knew of Amalia Ryksek's mental illness. And killing the cat meant war. And the choice of weapon for Amalia Ryksek was indeed her umbrella with which she knocked Bruno Ryksek unconscious. 
and roll credits, bitches. That pretty much sums up this movie. Yeah, so all the spoilers in the world were right there. But if we go through the movie as a movie, like scene by scene, any special thoughts? What do you think about the cinematography? I have been extremely surprised by the quality of cinematography in hand here. Like I said previously in this episode, back in the days there was really some great filmmaking done in Finland and the quality of our films, even though not always, was pretty high production-wise and when it came to performances and camera work and all of this stuff. So there is a... I would say this is extremely well-shot movie. And it does have some pretty stellar camera work in a way how some of the scenes play almost like in a horror movie or there is some really magnificent close-ups on characters. There were a couple of cuts that I felt that were kind of a hammy and somewhat unintentionally funny. To give you a couple of examples, uh, one would be when they are recapping the moment when they found Bruno Rucksack's body from the swimming pool and Butler makes the notion how he squeezed the soap back together. And then there is that one shot where Butler, with the soap in hand, walks towards the, the camera so that you don't see Butler completely. The camera is focused on his right hand, which is holding the soap. And then the soap just comes. And then he walks towards the camera in a way that actually the soap that he's holding his hands gets closer and closer and closer until it's right in your face. And you just go like... Okay, yeah, well, you made that shot. The soap gets a goddamn close-up. And another example that quickly comes to my mind, going through my notes here, is the death of Mrs. Rüksek, when she swallows the absinthe, which has been laced with cyanide, makes the notion that it tastes like almonds. And then there's that one shot when... She rises up extremely quickly, screams something, and the camera switch angles, and then she falls down. Actually, that looks really scary in real life, because it looks like she she, she does drop the glass and then immediately falls very close next to the glass. Like I hope she was fine after the shooting. Well, if you look at it extremely closely, going by frame by frame... You actually notice that she drops the glass on a different spot where it actually finally ends up in the close-up shot of the fucking glass. Mm. Like, the glass actually teleports between the shots. The glass teleports. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the actual actor's safety here. Well, I was merely just thinking that the teleporting glass. But fuck the actors, <laughs> they get paid for this shit. <laughs> But yeah, there, there are those moments. And there are uh, some shots where, okay, in these cases it's not. It's not a matter of the chosen camera angles. But there are a couple of hilarious moments when they speed up the film. Really? Yep. For no oh. good fucking reason. Where, where? Where? 34 minute mark. 
when they are following the characters moving through the house as a group, there is a small speed up on the film. And later on, on the 35-minute mark, once again, uh, following Butler opening the doors. And there is third one that came to my eye. It is one of those shots when Palmu and his posse are actually exiting the manor and heading for the front door. And there also you can actually see that they have sped up the movie, not by much, but they do run the uh, frames a little bit faster on those moments <clears throat> to cut off the running time on the scenes where characters are merely walking towards a door. Okay, very possible. I can't say that I really noticed that, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying it didn't happen. It wasn't as, <laughs> as noticeable as in, for example, Rear Window, which was our first episode. Yeah, it, it is much more subtle here. And like I said, they are extremely short shots. So it, it's, it's most definitely, it's not like in a Rear Window, where you get super obvious, long running shot where you can clearly see that they have sped up the film. Yeah. But there are those moments. Just like there are those classical jump cuts that come more prominent in the film, the longer the film actually processes. But Henrik, the most distracting thing in this film for me was when Inspector Palmu and his posse and K.V. Laihonen and Mrs. Vanne go to the restaurant... And have a drink as well. And outside the window, you see a French flag. How do you explain the French flag? I completely missed the French flag. Well, it could have... God damn it! <laughs> I think it's just some stock cardboard background that they put outside of the windows. Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah. I, got... <laughs> I completely missed the flag. <laughs> I'm not sure. That could be just something that they themselves did not notice or were unable to avoid when shooting the film. Well, definitely it looks like a cardboard background and it most definitely is. But the question is, of course, because this is a black and white movie, is it really a French flag? But when I look at the how dark the colors are, it definitely could be a French flag. And if not a French flag, it's definitely not a Finnish flag. Most definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, good call, I must admit. Yeah. I'm always looking for the flaws. <laughs> That's what we do in this podcast. We look at old-time classics. And ruin them. Ruining them by nitpicking on completely superfluous flaws. <laughs> As mentioned earlier, this was voted in 2012 as the best Finnish film ever made. Ever, 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 ever. The public broadcaster Yleisradio, or Yle for short, asked critics to choose the best Finnish film of all time, and Commissario Palmo's error won by a large margin. For further trivia, Aiku Korhonen was the first choice to play Palmo, but he was super ill at the time, and the role went to Joel Rinne and... Perhaps that's for the best. Tauno Palo was thought as one of the actors that could take the helm. But he had the baggage of... of He had acted in so many movies and played many romantic roles that they chose Joel Rinne. And it was a really good call. I can't imagine anyone better than Joel Rinne for this role at the time. 
this is was kind one of those movies and those characters that become iconic through the actor that that has been chosen to play the character. Yeah, the stars truly aligned, Commissario Palmo, in this one. Most definitely. Like you said, the story has been brought up to stages. It exists both in book and audiobook, and there are a lot of different forms of this story. And at least to me, none of those other presentations are in no way as memorable as Joel Rinne's performance here. Like, Joel Rinne is the face of Palamu, most definitely. Truly, truly is. And you can't imagine any other actor making this role. Like, when you think about Palamu, you immediately think about Joel Rinne. Yeah. It's the same kind of a situation, like, for example, the Birdie and Wooster series, which is completely tied around Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Or, you know, Dr. House, a character that when you hear the name, you immediately think about Hugh Laurie. And for the character of Palmo, Joel Rinne is definitely that kind of an actor. There was talk of the people who are still alive. Well, it's director Matti Kassila, born in 1924. He's now 94 years old as we are recording this podcast. And then there is Elina Salo, played as Aire Rykämerol, born in 1936. She is 82 years old. And cancers of the mouth for example and a lot of them were drinkers and they died in their 50s and 60s so come on cut down that drinking and uh, this movie is distributed by SF yep yeah they've finished film <laughs> rough translation they filed for bankruptcy in 1965 there was a lot of financial turmoil of the Finnish cinema caused by Like the two and a half year long lasting actors strike. The trends were also changing or so they thought anyway. Because the television was a big thing around 1965. And even though SF was still not doing so bad. They decided to file for bankruptcy with the lead of TJ Sarka. The longtime producer of SF. And at least they were still... Not doing so bad when they ended. Yeah, closing Suomen filmiteollisuus is something that I still kind of struggle to comprehend even today. When you look at back the Finnish film history, Suomen filmiteollisuus was pretty much our film history or was our film industry during that time and they were extremely prominent downright to a point where you could say that they were monolithical entity oh yeah yeah so coming down from there and closing your doors is is it's downright baffling i must confess yeah absolutely even though it's hard to imagine <clears throat> that some film intellectuals have to close their doors when you are doing three Goddamn three Pekka and Pätkä films within a year. 
I must say that you are kind of asking for trouble at that point. Was it like the Charlie Chaplin of ours? Unfortunately, they kind of were like Charlie Chaplin of ours. Yeah. Yeah, and most notably, it even comes down on how you wanna define the notion Charlie Chaplin of ours. Pekka and Patka as a comedy duo were our version of Charlie Chaplin, pretty much. When it comes to how prominent they were. And if you wanna separate a certain figure from the duo, Esa Pakarinen, as a person, as an actor, I would say, was our Charlie Chaplin. Would you recommend any other Finnish films? If I would have to go the easy road, I would, of course, recommend for everybody our kind of national treasure. The unknown show. I can't pass a Yes, absolutely. And yeah. the the unknown soldier was in my mind 1955 version. But that being said, I also liked the 1985 revision, and I also went to the theater just recently. When it was in theaters, I went to watch the third version, unknown soldier from 2017. I just happened to be in Finland at that time, and it was good. Uh, I don't, I don't know if it, if it was necessary, but it was okay. It was okay. But there you see that that is the reason why you most definitely why when you do an international movie podcast and it comes around the Independence Day and you are trying to choose which film to cover from Finnish film history, this is exactly the reason why it has to be the Unknown Soldier because it is the most prominent film. Finland has ever done. Yeah. It is the only film in our film history that has, at least to my knowledge, been remade fucking twice and also exists as a God knows how many theater plays and is is a book and is an audio book and is a... Well, I'm surprised that it's not a comic book yet, <laughs> but I'm definitely counting on the fact that it's just a matter of time until we have a comic book adaptation of The Unknown Soldier. Yeah, it's adapted from the novel of Väinö Linna, one of the most famous Finnish writers as well. Directed by Edwin Leine. I thoroughly recommend that if you're not going to watch Inspector Palmus' Error, then definitely watch The Unknown Soldier. And... We have not rested our case. We will definitely watch The Unknown Soldier at one point as well. Maybe the next Independence Day, who knows. To our listeners, The Unknown Soldier is most likely the only Finnish film you even can watch. Mm -hmm. Since now that it has been remade for the second time in 2017, it's, I would say, one of the very few films that you can actually purchase on the international movie market. Like, you can't find a copy of Goddamn Error of Inspector Palmu, but I would say that you will be able to find a copy of this new remake of The Unknown Soldier, which is nothing like the first version. But, you know, when it comes to Finnish film, you are kind of stuck with what you can get your hands into. So if you're looking for anything freaking weird, like Finnish movies or Asian movies, or Polish movies, whatever the case is, this is not an advertisement of any kind. We will not get any money from this information, but please go to alibris.com, that is A-L-I-B-R-I-S.com, where you will find 
Arguably the biggest collection of movies, possibly even bigger than Amazon, as seems to be often the case. For example, I've been looking for Another Time, Another Place, the introductory movie of Sean Connery, which I will buy from this website very soon. So, alibris.com, that's where your movies are. Not supported by Alibris. Yeah, that does, that sounds... <laughs> Definitely not something that would have been supported here in this podcast, monetary-wise. From here we get naturally to the discussion of... Henrik, why do Finnish people speak so funnily in old movies? Well, have you seen the modern Finnish movies? Well, yeah. But what's with the excessive use of the... And this very Swedish-sounding... Letter when they are talking. For example, Lauloin eilen riemukseni. They speak like that. I, I would say that that's decade-shaming stereotype. But they do, approximately. So, I'm I've always been intrigued by that. Why do they speak like that? Do they really speak like that in when they're at their own homes and talking with their friends? Minä ja Airi olemme nytten lähteneet kaunille kesälomalle ja minusta tuntuu että in that way. A kind of a hard question to answer, or anything to give a definite answer to. Some of it, it's it's the theater aspect, but uh... that is, you know, that I I would say it's twofolded. Since, of course, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I did go and get my PhD <laughs> in phonetics. <laughs> so, my expert opinion on the matter, man, would be that. Part of it is kind of the phonetical uh, pronunciation that comes to Finns. Like, we have our own way of pronouncing words, and our language, phonetically, it's pretty rough. It's it's kind of a hard language. Yeah, and it was much harder back, yeah. back then, but they had this really soft L, which is bothering me. Where, where is this coming from? Is it is it to be... Is it just to sound... Kind of more upper class Finn if you're using the more Swedish L and strong R letter. I would say that to us, the strong R, it's something that we just grow into. But it is still a different R in this movie than what you use day to day. I wouldn't say it's that different. Okay, let me exemplify in this quote that I find the my favorite quote in this movie. This is from Mr. Palmu. First in Finnish. Murha! Murha on kaikista rikoksista ratkaisevin ja lapullisin, sillä sitä ei voi koskaan sovittaa. Ja siksi murha on ainoa pätevä salapoliisijutun aihe. Poliisimiehen täytyy odottaa. Odottaa, että rikolliset tekevät rikoksensa ja sitten selvittää ne. Tästä selvittämisestä puuttuu kerta kaikkiaan romantiikka. Sinä puhut aina psykologiasta ja intuitiosta ja ties mistä, ja mielelläsi ylpeilet noilla yliopisto-opinnoillasi. Minä olen tällainen vanha, yksinkertainen poliisimies, mutta minä tiedän, että mielikuvituksella ei saa olla mitään tekemistä poliisin työssä rikoksen asiallisen selvittämisen kanssa. On vain kerättävä faktat, asetettava ne oikeisiin yhteyksiinsä ja vedettävä välttämättömät johtopäätökset. Siinä kaikki! Mutta huolellinen pitää olla, ja siksi sinun pitää Kirjoittaa uudestaan tämä pöytäkirja. Siinä on sinulle vähän kirjallista askaritelua. 
<laughs> yeah, I actually don't find that that weird. <laughs> like, I see what you are aiming at, but the R is not constantly kind of a brought into these extra levels of hardness, even in your, you know, example. For example, in your example also, there was giving this extra weight, not simply to the R, phonetically wise. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say that that was as weird as you kind of make it sound like. In your example that you just gave, there is given this extra weight in pronunciation, both vocals and consonants. Of course, those R's, like you said, the R kind of uh, comes through. But I would make the case that a lot of that is simply for phonetical reasons when it comes to, you know, Finnish language and how we Finns pronounce words. We, from the get-go, we like to, or we, we have the hard-hitting R, which is something I'm most certain that our listeners have also picked up already, listening to this podcast and listening to our R's. And in your example, also some of the vocals, like, for example, the A was given extra weight. And that, I would say, is is simply a case of that theater background, once again, where you have to give extra emphasis on some letters and some words in order to bring forth the dramatics and to highlight certain sentences but it cannot apply for everyone. For example, radio or TV announcers, and you see the exact same trend in the way they talk. For example, Väinö Linna oli tänään menossa kovasti Olympiastadionille, ja olemme tänään kuuntelemassa hänen puheitani. This kind of speaking, of course, well, it was the thing that they did back then, but... Yeah, they did that basically everywhere. Why is it so goddamn different? Is it just the style of speaking that was back then? Of course, it has also to do with the microphones. When you hear everything through the microphones at the time, it sounds different. More... Mm, it sounds more broken. Different yeah. different microphones, different pronunciation way of presenting yourself. And you can see this trend Europe-wide. You can see this trend then changing perhaps in the 80s or the 90s. I would make the case that you can see the trend kind of globally. Yeah, yeah. Like, everybody was doing that back in the day. Yeah, yeah. X3, X3. Every fucking newspaper boy. Fucking ever. Exact same stunt. It's kind of amazing. I can't even probably imitate that. Yeah, of course not. Because, you know, the way how we approach speech and speaking, it it has changed globally throughout the years. But would you agree with me that... The way we speak Finnish language might have just changed in day-to-day talk as well, considerably. No, I I would be too afraid to make that case. Well, we, we, we address people with the formal form less and less. There's that. Yeah, in that sense. In that sense, of course, yeah. But, Naturally, but- our... Our way of speaking has changed considerably throughout the years. Yeah, but uh, uh, let's say, let's say, for argument's sake, I'll be in the 1930s marketplace for meat. I will go to the butcher. Uh, I want a piece of meat. Will I say 
Voisitteko leikata minulle osan tuosta lehmästä? Hyvää päivää! Voisitteko leikata tuosta lehmästä minulle osa sen, niin lähden sitten kotioni syömähän sitä? Which one would it be? Are we now once again... Are, are you making the point... Trying to make the point that our pronunciation has changed or the formality of, of how we speak has changed. Both have changed. But did people talk like they talk in the movies and the radio and TV back in the day in their regular life? Because that would be really... Okay, that, that, that would be kind of abnormal. I can give you it being abnormal, but not that much abnormal. Maybe I need to talk with my grandmother. My grandmother is uh, has been a Finnish teacher, so stay tuned on this. Yeah, this is definitely. I can already feel that this is something that you are trying to come back on uh, some of the later episodes. We we get into the goddamn Christmas episode eventually, and that is when you actually bring this up again. Like, oh, by the way, yeah, I just talked to my grandmother. <laughs> She confirms. Well, it would be another time, another place, because it, we will be covering, as it looks like, a Russian movie. So enjoy. But when it comes to the old Finnish movie pronunciations, I really don't see the problem that strongly. I don't see a problem. I'm, I'm just really fascinated by how the pronunciation has changed. This might be, like, most of the listeners may not give a flying circus about this whole thing but for me it's absolutely fascinating but maybe it's fascinating for you because everybody was doing it yeah but i would argue that everything that has been pronounced in this movie for example is coming from almost a different country well, well okay that, that... Uh, uh, yeah and it, and to me it most definitely is not that strong <clears throat> yeah maybe that's a little hyperbole but it's not from this life certainly I mean, take it, if you remove the phrases and the kind of a political correctness that they have in, in their speech, in their, in, in their sentences, I would say that most of the dialogue used in the film could still pass on as an everyday way of speaking today between older conversationalists. But it, with that level of theatricalness in that for example Paamu saying Sinuna olisin hyvin tyytyväinen että olen tuolla tallissa keskustelemassa noin nättien naisten kanssa Hä? or something like that <laughs> and in that case I would say that there were only couple of emphasis on certain letters in the pronunciation the ha at the end of it well but for our listeners this is the translation for the quote that I'm a fan of It's also pretty much in the same form in the book. Apologies in advance for the length of the quote, but it's great. So, murder. Murder is the most conclusive and final of all crimes, as it can never be reconciled. And therefore murder is the only valid topic for a detective case. A policeman must wait. Wait for the criminals to do their crime and then solve them. And such investigation is completely void of romanticism. You always talk of psychology and intuition and who knows what and boast with pleasure with your university studies. I am merely this old simple policeman, but I do know that imagination can't have anything to do with the police work in order to solve a case in a proper manner. 
You only need to collect the facts, set them in their correct context, and draw the conclusion. That is all! But one needs to be careful, and hence you need to rewrite this transcript. There you go, some doodling hobbies for you. <laughs> Did you find any sexist attributes in this cellulose? Well, given what happens in the film, it's impossible not to find any sexist attributes. The biggest one that caught my eye was when Palmo flatly ignored the maid's views of the incident. It was pretty terrible to watch. He just said that something along the lines that let me guess, you have not seen anything, you don't know anything, and you're really terrified of the events. But in a way that is slightly, maybe, kind of balanced in the sense that he then immediately walks into the cleaning closet. It's kind of a decent revenge, but... Uh, uh, well, I never re- read that one as a sexist stance from Palmus' side. I just didn't understand why he didn't interview this person at all. She's only in a one scene and then completely gone. Why? Because at that point, Palmus was already completely frustrated on how the investigation was going and how he... How everybody basically was giving Palmu the exact same spiel. How they did not see anything and they did not hear anything and they are all completely terrified. Even though Palmu himself already knows that something's off. And Palmu himself has witnessed... I would even say illegal behavior from the attendees inside the manor when the engineer Vara downright threatens the butler in front of Palmu's eyes yep. or the scene where Amalia Ryksek ends up congratulating the engineer Vara when Vara admits that he came into the house to actually physically harm and when Vara admits that he came into the manor to physically assault Bruno and Palmu witnesses this one also. Why Palmu does not intervene with these interactions and why he lets this the situation play out, I'm not completely sure on that. But everyone inside the manor has already made it perfectly clear that they are not playing along and they are holding secrets. And Palmu is at that point still unable to kind of... A, get inside the situation to find an angle how he can break inside the circle of silence that all these characters have formed between them. And yeah, I can believe that Palmu is completely frustrated with the situation at that point. And him just being addicted and made, it's just him ventiling out his frustration and, and the gender of the maid actually does not play a part. Hmm. Uh, The uh, the maid could have been a man or a female, and he or she still would have received some shit from Palabu. But then again, he has appropriately had an interview with everybody else except the maid, and that never happens. And that is an error of a police work. I admit that much. Maybe the maid would have had a different kind of interpretation, different answer to what Palmu said. <laughs> but she just says that... How, how, how did Mr. Uh, Inspector know this? 
Yeah. And to me, that feels like Palmu being absolutely right in his stance that the maid also does not know, or at least would not admit knowing anything about anything. Henrik, my dear co-host, do you have any quotes from this movie? Oh, well, naturally, I mean, this is once again quite quotable movie. The monologue that you gave from Palmu is definitely one of them. I would say one of the highlights of the film, dialogue-wise. If I would not go into that kind of a length and simply pick up a simple quote, Palmu yelling, selin joka sorkka. <laughs> yeah, it's on my list yeah. as well. Yeah, he himself alone goes through all the duties <laughs> in the red book. And another, another great, but extremely problematic and even racist quote from Palmu coming in this film. And I would say this one is actually being quote-wise, or as a sentence, this is actually being knowingly harmful. When Palmu yells to the crime scene investigator crew, when they are first time arriving at the manor, kuin mustalaiset. That's that. Yeah, don't make a ruckus like gypsies. Yeah. Like that was, even after, you know, defending Pekka and Batcast, Negroes as being a film of its time and not knowing how harmful, how racist the film is and not being intentionally harmful. You know, even after all that, I would say this one quote definitely jumped into my ears when I heard it. And in here, in this case, I cannot give as much leeway. <clears throat> and the translator, Salin joka sorkka. It would be something like... <sighs> Turn your backs, every hoof. Every hoof or claw. Yeah. But yeah, you get the idea. Then when, uh, f- I believe for the second time, Mr. Palmo tells to everyone in the house to stay in the same room this time. Not, not only to r- leave the complete building, but to stay in the exact room that they are now in, the parlor. <laughs> then Amalia Ryksek shouts after that. It's kind of faintly heard, but you can hear it. She says, Have you done mies? <laughs> and then there is Mr. Rukam who says, Toi on baby äijä kyllä. And uh, yeah, I'm not gonna translate those. Yeah, the problem with great Finnish quotes is that none of them actually translates that well into any other language. Yeah, to be, I mean, you you probably hear this if you're a traveler of any kind. You will hear this like every fucking weekend. Everybody says, that, oh, my language is so special that I can't really translate that. That, that, that. that doesn't translate that well, but I'm being serious here. I don't know how to translate this. I really don't know. I've, and we like to conjugate the words in absurd ways, even if the conjugation doesn't make any sense in official way of the language, we still can understand what the other people is insinuating. And it's kind of amazing. You don't see that in many languages. Maybe in languages as crazy as Finnish, like Hungarian, which is related to Finnish. In F- Hungarian, I believe there's like 14 different ways to 
conjugate a word. Don't even ask me how many ways there is to conjugate a word in Finnish. But yeah, we are one of the most fucked up languages in the entire world. So, so just please don't ask me how to translate that. Please, please, please. Well, just a special notice to TJ Sarka, the producer. He was the CEO of SF Films for, I think, mo- most of its time. He also was a director, produced 233 films, directed 49 feature films, and he announced the SF bankruptcy. The film locations of this movie, um, I believe the... Um, is it a studio in of SF in Kulosari and at the center of Helsinki. That's all I can get out of this movie. Lighting, I like it. The movie starts with candlelight, basically, with Butler with his candles. It's very horror-esque. I think this movie is ahead of its time, if you look at it. And I think the cuts are really fast-paced for its time. It's kind of like the James Bond of Finland before the James Bond, because the first James Bond was, as a film version, it was made in 1962. This is made in 1960. Oh boy, Gary. Like... What? If, if, if you wanna talk about James Bond of Finland, there's only one movie you can go to. And don't talk about Vares. No, definitely not Vares. Vares is the unfortunate attempt of being the Humphrey Bogart. Of Finland. <laughs> but no, I, wh- what I'm talking about is the undying classic from the 80s. Pisa Mackinan's Triple O and the Curse of Death. <laughs> What's that? It's, to... it's, it's, it's agentti nolla 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 ja kuoleman kurvit. Oh. <laughs> A film that was solely made simply because goddamn... It's like a parody of uh, 007, right? It is. It is a parody of 007, which was done simply because Visa Mackinnon managed to get his hands on uh, Roger Moore's stunt double <laughs> for extremely small amount of time. Immediately jumped into the opportunity to, to make to make a Finnish James Bond film. Absolutely unwatchable. Like you can't you can't go through that shit with a sane mind. I mean, it 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 it, it goes as bad that the movie itself, Agent Triple O and the Curves of Death, it's a parody of a James Bond parody. Like that that was the fucking selling argument of the film where it was being made. It was meant to be a parody of the 67 version of Casino Royale. I thought that would be something like, this film is edited by Elmer Lahti. I suppose I can't really blame Elmer Lahti, but of course, because we have the same copy of this movie, as it happens. There are some weird cuts in this movie, but I think it's simply because of the version that they have of the original film. It's just so old that some part of the movie has corrupted in a way that there's a lot of frame skipping in this film sometimes you even see some skipped dialogue you're not sure what these characters are saying for example the engineer vara first time meets mr palmo 
and you're not even sure if Ingenieur Vara says anything to Mr. Palmer because the film clips at that exact moment and also when Mr. Palmer is about to go to sauna and explains that to uh, his detective colleague Mr. Toivo. I don't think it's editing mistake. It could be an editing mistake, but I have to be really soft here. The editing tools that they had at their hand on those days. Ridiculous. So I'm gonna just give a pass for this one. There are some notable editing. I don't know, can I say mistakes? Especially counting in the tools they had in their possession at the time. But there are visible jump cuts, <coughs> editing-wise, in this movie where, for example, a character starts walking, for example, from a door into a room and then mysteriously teleports mid-walk. And this uh, kind of a... You face more and more these jump cuts towards the end of the film. They are almost completely absent... Pretty much for the first half of the film, but after the one hour and 17 minute mark, that's when I started to finally notice them. And they just, they came more frequent and more intense as the movie went on from that point onwards. Unfortunately, the insanely popular and amazing podcast called The Flick Lab was not able to get their hands on the Blu-ray edition released on 2016 of this movie, which could be a better print of this film, I have no idea, but I'm going by the DVD version of this film as is Hen Harik, which means that we do have these so-called jump cuts here. I'm interested if they have corrected this in the 2016 re-release of Blu-ray. I would almost make a guess that the problems are so integral with the actual film reels and the original film that was composed that they could not have fixed those jump cuts for the Blu-ray release. And I would agree with you, with not knowing anything factual about the Blu-ray release. But um... No, but yeah, but looking at the film at hand, I would say that they are the, you cannot fix those today. Yeah, when, most... when composing the Blu-ray, unless you manage to somehow find some, I don't know, a buried vault where would be few meters extra film reel, you know, from the original shoot of the movie. Would you say that this is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy edition? Most definitely, most definitely. Uh, yeah, it likely is, but it could be that the original film reel of the film has dilapidated in the sense that it has a lot of noise in the image that is hard to deal with but I would love to see the blu-ray to compare what they can do I mean if you're going to release a fucking blu-ray then you probably then you have to go to the original source if you don't then just just kill yourselves no no point for (laughs) blu-ray Yeah, then again, you know, the first films you get got out when the DVD came out as a technology. You know, the first DVD films were once again re-releases of the old silent films and the same went with the Blu-ray. 
well, Blu-ray first hit the market. The first films that I found as Blu-rays were once again old black and white movies and some silent films. So I guess that when it comes to Blu-ray, nobody is paying that much attention to the conversion process as you demand. <clears throat> yeah, sorry, I, I I am the absolute quality freak of the podcast, I believe. Henrik may know the most amount of films in the world available, but I may know when to demand quality of my Blu-rays. <laughs> Once again, you know, your introduction into this movie and Indiana Jones, as you admitted yourself, <laughs> happened through VHS. God-chosen format. <laughs> but another kind of a oddity that I noticed now that we are nitpicking every technical aspect here on this podcast is at times the actors themselves actually mispronounce things. To give you a couple of examples is, for example, the first time they meet the writer Kove Laihonen. Laihonen uses the old saying Espanjalinna, the castle in Spain. I have never heard that before this movie. Honestly. And neither have I, but you know, I'm I'm willing to go with the characters here. Yeah. Who vouch for it actually being a well known saying. And Palabu instead says Espanyanelinia, the line in Spain. And goddamn his sidekick Virta actually confirms the Espanyalinia. Which was something that I, uh, I was quite left scratching my head. Or later on in the movie, this is once again some of the longer <laughs> dialogue scenes where Palmu is talking about Irma Vanne and by accident names her Irma Ranne. Really? Yeah, that happens. And you know, th- those were the moments where I was really, where I was surprised that no one had noticed those when making the film. So yeah. there are genuine mistakes here on the celluloid, is my point. Definitely is, and there's a moment where Lady Ruksek says some line with her close-up shot, and in the background you see Mrs. Rukama. And Mrs. Rukama does spell out some line, but it is inaudible completely. And you get a reverse of this fucking problem... At the very end of the film, when they finally arrest Amalia Ryksak, and Amalia is protesting her arrest as they are walking her upstairs from the basement. This happens immediately after the final showdown. Right. And in the audio, you can hear Amalia yelling her protest. But when you look at the film, you actually notice that nobody is speaking. <laughs> so... So that happens. Well, you want to get technical with the audio landscape here. You want to know how fucking much this audio hardware. Do you know how fucking much the audio hardware wait during this movie with the Agabaldic system? <laughs> I, I have no idea how... how <laughs> I, I have no idea. I also don't know in any way... How big and how much space the audio equipment took, but I, knowing the size of the age-old computers, I could guess that the audio equipment took like two fucking storerooms. 
World of Space. Well, looking at the pictures that I have at my hand, it looks like the audio was recorded entirely separately on separate reels, which had to be manually timed with the picture that they had in separate reels again. And this audio equipment, the control equipment in itself, weighs 93 kilograms. Then there is AC power supply that weighs fucking 53 kilograms. Then there is the batteries. If you don't have AC, then you will have 20 kilograms more. And then there's the recorder equipment itself. It's 80 kilograms. And, <laughs> I mean, if you count all of these together, it amounts to something like, at least like 300 kilograms. You need like a separate fucking crew to move this audio system around. That's complete madness. Already. Yeah. I mean, I applaud the people of this time. Good God. Yeah, it's hard to even imagine that kind of effort and recording equipment of that size, considering that today, these days, I can have a voice recorder on my fucking cell phone. Mm -hmm. Which is better than this. Yeah, which is better (laughs) than this one. Miles. Insanely better. But hey, wouldn't wouldn't it be actually fascinating to do a modern movie with this shit old technology to get that kind of a old Commissario Palmo vibe back. Should we do this movie, Hendrik? I think we most definitely should do this one. And I, I think we should remake the film without yeah. any money so that it would even look as cheap as possible. Okay, you will be Commissario Palmo. <laughs> I, I can be Commissario Palmo. Will you I'll... be Amalia Ryksak? <laughs> <laughs> you know... Well, I, I I love to be different voices, so I'm going to give it a try. <laughs> yeah, but uh, since, since you mentioned it, I of course could recommend Francis Ford Coppola's version of Dracula. As that is a film where they actually, it was shot on 92, and they used, at least to my knowledge, entirely and only the old school camera tricks in the effects and physical effects. And there is a moment in the film where they even repute the age-old black and white movie camera and they shot a few frames worth of material with that and inserted that into one of the scene transitions in the movie. Uh So there you see... Well, it it was made in, like I said, 92, but there still is that theme of using age-old equipment in a modern film and combining them those two together. And the film Shadow of the Vampire also does the same trick. In that case, the film crew borrowed the original film camera used by... Murno in his filming of Nosferatu back in the silent day era and they had the exact same camera on the film and to my knowledge they did shoot some footage with that camera and or at least realistic replica of that camera 
depending on did they get the right to use the actual camera. And they combined those shots also with the film. So if you want a you know, couple of examples where there is that old school technology used in a modern movie, you know, I, I would recommend that you check those two films out. It would be kind of hilarious to, in this podcast, to go see the Lumiere train and just talk about the Lumiere train the few seconds. I guess that it's more be- of a documentary for like three hours to talk about that. Yeah, that would be definitely a challenge. The music of this movie, any special notes, it's made by Osmo Lindemann. He was also a music teacher, known as a pioneer of electronic music, which he didn't get to study for too long before he died. But yeah, and he studied in Sibelius Academy in Helsinki and in Munich also. He got into electronic music in Warsaw and Illinois and Columbia. Won the first prize of International Society for Contemporary Music, blah, blah, blah. Or, uh, in short, ISCM in 1972 with a song called Ritual, which I have not heard. But I have heard his spectacle, which is an electronic track, which I didn't really care about. It's just basically, in my opinion, to showcase what you can do with electronic sounds of that time. It's not really a song. It's just 10 minutes of random noises for me. Sorry, Osmo Lindemann, but I mean, yeah, it's it's nothing else than just showing what you can do with electronic sounds in 1974. Anyway, he won that prize and Osmo Lindemann was interested especially in computer music. He was an avant-garde composer, started with Karl Orff. Lindemann wrote also two symphonies and two piano concerts and a shitload of other stuff. He won the Jussi Prize for year's best film score in 1959 and 1962. I believe other one of those, well, it must have been the other, the second Commissario Palmo movie. Or otherwise, I'm I'm completely insane. There's also a song that features in this film, which is performed by Detective Kokki. Silimat tummat kuin yö. If I get my math right here, it's originally written by... I think well, it's written by Usko Kemppi, but in this movie it's performed by Kokki or Leo Jokela. So there. Film aspect... <laughs> Film aspect ratio is 1.66 to 1. Film length is 3 kilometers. Mm. The movie was released in 9th of September 1960. Do you like football? No, not at all. Me neither. What's your favorite scene of this film? In the end, my favorite pick for a favorite scene would be... The moment when Palomo is actually yelling to his two aides, <laughs> or his sidekicks, or whatever they, whatever Virta and Kokki are to Palomo, the two doofuses. <laughs> it's a funny scene, but at the same time, it it kind of a, does a good job in showcasing one of the running themes in this movie, which is the ones who are upper level of the social hierarchy 
always give shit to the to the ones on on the you know who are below them. The CEO of the company goes in and gives shit about Palmu to Palmu's superiors, or in this case, the it goes so that it first goes to the police chief who gives shit to Palmu's boss, who then yells at Palmu and orders the investigation to be seized, and finally Palmu yells at the doofuses simply for for the simple reason just to yell at them as he admits at that moment <laughs> maybe i most like the moment when <clears throat> detective cocky says to commissary palmo that why does mr palmo want to bathe and he just shrugs it off other great moment is when again detective cocky is drawing his example to detective toivo on how the Events might have happened, like there could have been a murderer X, and then there could have been a murderer Y, and maybe both of the X and the Y could have been not interested in the target Brun Rüksek, but maybe they were expecting to strike at target Z. But both of them, they were they were unable to get to the target Z. That's hilarious. Yeah, the, I can give you the entire formula of this case. See. <laughs> Henrik, do you like Finland? I I would say I have a, a love and hate relationship with Finland. What oh, do you not, love? Not, 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 so, not so much love and hate. Yeah, I like Finland. I, I would say I even love Finland, but, but part of loving something is also seeing the mistakes. And also seeing the faults in what you love so while well, well, yeah i love finland but i'm also at times extremely critical of finland and feel that finland could do better at least in finland you have this in finland things are relatively well still when you compare it to other nations in europe right now i i can't really make a call on that one henrik will you be beaten up by nationalist scum in the streets of Rovaniemi on Independence Day. Oh, well, the possibility is always there, especially <laughs> in my case, seeing how charming and well likable person I am. Well, aren't you? Uh, the the you may wanna get a second opinion on that one. <laughs> well, well, what's your favorite performance of Commissario Palamun errori? The obvious answer, of course. Which comes to no surprise, I guess, to absolutely anyone is is Joel Rinne, who has been much hyped throughout this episode. That being said, I am astonished how great performances this movie has altogether. Like, there is no single bad performance in this movie. So you Every don't completely actor... despise me for choosing this movie instead of Unknown Soldier? Well, of course, I completely despise you for, you know, not choosing the unknown soldier. <laughs> but, but that being said, you know, it's just, you know, complete heresy from your part, since some things are absolutely holy and should never be messed with. But, you know, that not counting in. Yeah, this, this movie is filled with great performances. And I, I would say each, they all make equally great work here and everybody should be given the first place 
as a best performer, but you know, if if I w- have to choose, as we have to in this podcast, yeah, in that case, you know, it's Jörinne. The man's still the iconic face of Palmu, and for good reason. Indeed, it is Jörinne. Hands down, and hands up. Thank you, Jörinne. Rest in peace. Thank you for your services for Finnish cinema. Henrik, do you like ice cream? Yeah, doesn't everybody? Yeah, it's just the point where I'm just trying, <laughs> trying to artificially <laughs> elongate this podcast. So, thank you <laughs> for joining us. And would you recommend Commissario Palmun Erehdys? I would definitely recommend the error of Inspector Palmu. In fact, I would recommend the entire four-part series, even in counting Vodka Commissario Palmu. Way better film that everybody gives credit for. So you would say you were not ashamed to watch this particular Finnish film for this particular Finnish episode? Uh, I, I, I can admit I'm not ashamed that I watched Commissario Palmun Erehdus. I am ashamed the fact that we did not watch The Unknown Soldier instead of this film. God damn it! So we will cover it later. <laughs> we will cover it later. <laughs> <laughs> and we never come back to the unknown soldier ever again. <laughs> the, uh, uh, we will edit this podcast, and this will be the only finished film we ever covered. God damn it! Here, here, here a, on this podcast, is this a challenge? We will do it. We'll do all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, week by week, the, the entire franchise, because that worked so goddamn well the last time. <laughs> Yeah, we have like tenfold more social media interest when we have removed ourselves from the Halloween franchise. <laughs> yeah. But, dear sheeples, I would recommend Commissario Palmun Erehdys. It is a great detective story. It has a lot of meat around the bones. It never gets boring. It has so much material around its bones, in fact, that it's really hard to kind of get the full picture on the first go but if you really concentrate on it you will notice that all the puzzles will fit this particular puzzle so if you get a chance to watch it that's great if you don't speak Finnish you're screwed but if you want to see it with Finnish subtitles please contact me at the flicklab at pm.me Henrik, do you like ice hockey? <laughs> no, fucking hate ice hockey. And any other sport that you try to come up with <laughs> at this point of the episode. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gunstagram, whatever you have available for you. If you are finding the Flick Lab name, then you are right on the money. And... Next week, if nothing changes, if Henrik will not self-destruct this episode, it will be White Hunter, Black Heart from Clint Eastwood, because Clint Eastwood is going to be very current with his new film that is going to hit the cinemas next year. Henrik, do you like albinos? God damn it! <laughs> 
This has been the Flick Lab. Thank you for joining us and see you next week. Yeah, see ya. And Airi Rykämö Bruno Ryksek could have had suicidal. The Lady Krusek. Ryksek. I just got some french fries in the restaurant, so...